Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Megan Vole. And I'm your co-host, Mark Ambrosio. Megan, uh, perhaps you can refresh uh, my memory. Where did you do your undergraduate? So I did my undergraduate at the wonderful University of Waterloo, and I got my degree in English with a minor in classical studies. A minor in classical studies. That's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you enjoy classical studies? I loved it. I would have made it a double major. Unfortunately, I didn't have the time to. (laughs) Yeah, and I have to be honest myself. I sort of like to pretend or stick claim to being an interdisciplinary scholar in the humanities and social sciences, but I have not actually taken a course in in, uh, classical studies, although I have taken, um, going way back to my undergraduate, I won't say when that was, (laughs) going way back to my undergraduate, I did take intro to political theory and spent a good month with my nose stuck in Plato's Republic. Well, it's a good thing, you know, you have no background because our guest today does have a background in classical studies. We're here today with Stephanie Denis. Thanks for being here, Stephanie. Hi, thanks for having me. And start us off, would you like to tell us about what your research is? What's the general gist of it? What are you doing? Oh, <laughs> uh, that's such a hard question, right? When people are like, hey, what do you do? So my my research is on Sparta. Um, I'm a specialist in Spartan studies and, and uh, in the Department of Classical Studies here at Western. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been here for a while. Uh, I'm not gonna say how long. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what my research is, so I focus on the archaic and classical period of Sparta primarily, um, which sort of takes us to as early as maybe like the eighth century BCE to uh, 323, the death of Alexander the Great starts the Hellenistic period. Um, and I focus on the political uh, aspects of Sparta, the political development of Sparta. In particular, I'm really, really interested in the relationship between uh, performance, poetry, and power. Mm-hmm. Sort of power broadly sort of conceived, but, but in Sparta in particular, the relationship between poetry and the highest level of government, the Spartan diarchy. So they have a, a dual kingship and... So I'm, I, I, that's that's pretty much what I what I work on all the time. <laughs> Stephanie, it sounds very interesting. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, and for the benefit of me, <laughs> can you perhaps break down when you when you think of ancient Greece and ancient Sparta, what are we looking at? What what are we looking at? Okay, so okay, so Sparta is um, actually a pretty small mm-hmm. ancient town um, in the southern part of the Peloponnese in Greece. And uh, it's one of the, the most famous um, Greek city-states of the classical sort of Greek antiquity, um, next to Athens, which is probably, um, I mean, arguably the, the most famous because we have a lot more material about it. And um, I don't know, how do I further break that down? No, that's very is interesting. That okay? That's very helpful. Like, how many... <laughs> How many city-states would there have been, and what makes Sparta unique? <laughs> I mean, roughly. <laughs> uh, yeah, so my face just fell because yes. there, are, there are lots and lots and lots. So for a long time, for a long time, classicists focused a lot on Athens and Sparta and didn't focus on a lot of other city-states. But to be honest, there's been quite a turn in research in the last, okay. um, I don't know, 20, 30 years of really broadening the perspective of what we think of as a city-state. And so there are thousands of city-states. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and they vary from size, you know, from a smaller size to really big, like Attica, which occupies a, a, quite a large part of the mainland. Um, 
in Sparta, which at one point is one of the largest city-states, not so much in that its original city is large, but its control bases are really large, almost the, the almost three quarters of the Peloponnesian, the Peloponnesian landmass. So really, really, really large. But they can be really quite small, tiny little city-state on a little island as well, like Lesbos or something. Mm-hmm. That's um, fascinating. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So also for the benefit of our, our listeners, since we're talking about Sparta, um, to get a sense of what was Sparta like, I think I'm going to have to cite um, the movie 300 um, by Zack Snyder because I think on a mainstream, I think that's what people think of when they think of Sparta. But I think we can both say that's wholly inaccurate. Yeah. Um, so for the benefit of our listeners, do you think you could give us a little taste of what Sparta was actually like? What was its governance? What, what was this dual kingship? What was going on in Sparta? actually yeah so so the movie the movie 300 right is based on a graphic novel um Mm -hmm. of the same name and uh, there's a lot of problems there's but there was a lot of controversy when the movie came out particularly with its depiction of eastern eastern religion and cultural practices persians um and and that's all very well founded Uh, sparta Mm -hmm. sparta and classics in general can sometimes crop up in some really nasty places out there on the internet and in political discourse so it's it's really Where this stems from is the fact that there's something in Spartan studies called the Spartan Mirage. It's a coin. It's a term that was actually originally in French, coined in 1933 by this famous classicist dude, (laughs) um, Francois Ollier. And yes, yes, very French. And uh, what that is is that pretty much all of the material we have about Sparta wasn't made by Spartans. It was made by other people. And the material that we do have that came from the Spartans is created to put out a particular kind of image about mm-hmm. them, but doesn't necessarily represent the reality. And so this poses a lot of difficulty. A lot of what what people generally know or, or feel they know about Sparta comes from late Roman sources um, that are at the end of this very long, complicated tradition of talking about Sparta in a really particular, exaggerated, mm-hmm. idealized, archaicized kind of way. So what is actually happening in the archaic period is, is really interesting. We, we think about Sparta as this place filled with uh, uh, Gerard Butler's, uh, <laughs> right, with lots with, with an unnatural amount of abs. Um, <laughs> And it's true that Spartans spent a lot of their Spartan citizens, I should say, which is actually quite a small population compared to all the people that would have lived in Laconia or the larger area that Sparta controls. Um, so Spartan citizens would have spent a great deal of time working out, for sure, actually. You know, Xenophon says that that the Spartans were really, really attentive to um, to their to their bodies and that you could never skip, you know, leg day, <laughs> arm day or neck day. Which is a fun, which is a fun thing I like to think about. Neck day. Yeah, neck day. I don't know. I don't know what that's about. But uh, so they spent a lot of time exercising. But something that has really struck me about Spartans is they're actually spending a lot more of their time dancing. 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 Yeah. Why is that? So, so dancing is a really important part of their religious participation. So from when they're young, like seven, all the way up into their old age, they're participating in something called choral performances. So in Athens, we have drama, right? We've mm-hmm. got like the Antigone and we've got, we've got all these stage plays. In Sparta, we don't have that. That's not a Spartan thing. In Sparta, we have choral performances, which is done religiously in the same way that the uh, Attic drama is, but it is a choreographed performance where lyric poetry is sung to music 
And so they're dancing and they're singing and they're spending a great deal of time sort of leaping through the air. And men do this and women do this. And generally they do it naked or mostly naked. Okay. Yeah. So that's what's happening mostly in Sparta. And so you're you're actually looking at a lyric poem. Is this and can you tell us a bit about this lyric poem? Yeah. So so lyric poetry is a really broad genre. Um, it encompasses you know tons and tons of different mini genres. But I'm looking at two different lyric poets. Um, and pretty much lyric poetry is just like ancient music sung to meters using a instrument mm-hmm. um, along with it, uh, like a like a kithara or something string like our guitars. Um, and so it's really broad genre. And what I'm looking at is two different po- lyric poets. So Tertius, or sometimes people pronounce it Tertius, sort of depends on the spelling. Um, uh, and that's martial poetry. So, uh, but he also writes poetry about the government. So he wrote this poem called Unomia, which means good order. Okay. And the poem seems to, we we don't have evidence that, you know, like the kings patroned this poem, you know, that they paid for it. Mm -hmm. But there's certainly, there's certainly a relationship going on between (laughs) power and, and what's in this poem. Because the poem totally legitimizes the kingship and says, like, you better obey the kings because Zeus he gave the kings this city so you you need to obey them so there's a really so there's something very political going on there Mm -hmm. and this is poetry that would have been sung at like a a civic festival uh, in front of all the people of Sparta so it's a it's a public poem it could also have been sung in a symposium okay yeah so would this be like commercial propaganda that's what I'm kind of picturing here I know right so it's really hard for us to get a handle on like what what the word propaganda means in antiquity, um, because we don't have as as good of an understanding of sort of like state creation, you know, propaganda and its association to like nationalism and, and those sort of mm-hmm. contemporary modern ideas, right? But it does seem to be that the poem is really interested in supporting the status quo and and keeping keeping that going as much as as much as possible. And Tertius wrote this poem at a time that some scholars refer to as a crisis moment in Sparta, where people were not happy, generally, because the wealth gap was quite large, Uh and land ownership is a big problem. So uh, we might all feel... I was going (laughs) to say... Slightly like this matters to us now. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. Now, the other poem, though, I focus on is choral poetry, so poetry that's sung in choral performances of young women. So it's two different genres. So you said two different genres. There's choral, po- choral poetry and there's... This sort of martial, martial civic elegy. And how would that martial elegy be performed or recited? Yeah, that one we are less certain of. So we're either getting it being performed publicly in some kind of civic festival. We don't really know a lot about religion in Sparta and how it worked. And so whether it was going to, whether it's some sort of marshalling poem, like the soldiers are coming up together and we're singing this poem in front of them as they're collecting, or if we're seeing this poem being performed in archaic symposia, which are sort Mm -hmm. of like uh, aristocratic male drinking parties. Uh. Um, Now, that context would make sense if the poem is trying to get other aristocrats to follow the rules. But this poem does seem to be targeted as a more general audience, so mm-hmm. I do kind of lean towards it being something a bit more public. I find this uh, very interesting to me because when we think of poetry today, 
we think of someone sitting alone at home, <laughs> maybe over over a cup of tea, reading poetry alone yeah. to themselves and yeah. uh, and not allowed, or at yeah. least not normally allowed. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you're ta- what you're describing <clears throat> is a text that is meant to be performed, and it's the way we interpret poetry today. I feel is so much different than than that performative understanding. Yeah, really, it's music, and mm. I think that that's the that's a real challenge with dealing with ancient poetry is that you you really are dealing with an oral culture, mm-hmm. um, and that can be really challenging because we we generally operate uh, on a literate culture, yeah. on a, a culture that's based in writing, and writing gets a lot of privilege. This is this may seem like a dumb question, but did P- Plato mark the transition from orality to literacy? That's a really interesting question. So, so that that is a, a research question all in all in <laughs> all on its own, and a yes. lot of people are really interested. To Can you come what, back next week? Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Right? what yeah. the moment is yeah. of yeah. transition from orality to to mm-hmm. writing. Of course, it doesn't happen over overnight. Um, you know, before Plato, we have people like Herodotus and Thucydides. We're definitely writing stuff but also still engaging a lot with oral tradition. Mm-hmm. And so we have a lot of mix and mingle. Um, but but yes, I do think that there is quite a bit going on in Plato about talking about the dangers of oral poetics and that, that writing has benefits to sort of counteract mm-hmm. that. So he's definitely in that moment. Yeah, I'm totally a layperson when it comes to classics, but I heard that argument. And in, I know in Plato's, Plato's Phaedrus, there's some beautiful lines from Socrates you know, he's engaging with Socrates, and Socrates is saying, you know, like, um, I think he describes uh, the written form as a kind of cheapness because, you know, you don't need to remember. Whereas for oral performance, you need to remember the, you know, the text is not on a piece of paper. The text is inside you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and actually that, that it also speaks to, to privilege in Athens as well. So something that's, that is unique about Sparta is that they have a somewhat state funded education program. Oh, wow. mm. Yeah, and so so the so everybody who is a Spartiate citizen, which which is a privilege, like not there's not a lot of them necessarily, gets this education. But in Athens, you're looking at private tutors. And so the ability to learn recitation is going to be a marker also to a certain degree of class, of, class, yeah. of socioeconomic class. Yeah. So um now, texts are not going to be more available necessarily either, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so that's also yeah. a marker. There's no printing class. press. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 definitely, definitely not. So, but, but yeah, there's a really interesting dialogue going on. <laughs> dialogue going yes, on. Yes. <laughs> yes, in Plato's dialogue. <laughs> yes, dialogue. Yes, but yes. about about the relationship mm-hmm. between orality and, and writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in in this dialogue that we're having, I'm I'm hearing two conflicting things about. Sp- Sparta to me. One is, you know, they have the state-funded education, and that seems really progressive, I think, for, for the age that they're in. But on the other hand, the poem you're looking at, you're talking about how people were unhappy, there's a wealth gap, there's lots of things going on. So can you maybe talk about this poem and, and why were they so unhappy? What, what, what was happening here? So a big part of what seems to have been happening is, is that land is inequitably owned mm-hmm. and inequitably accessed. So you can own land and still allow it to be farmed sufficiently enough so that everybody gets to eat. And it seems like that's not happening. That although that the, the, the land is owned by fewer and fewer families and that it's not being made available for, for what scholars say, call like free sustenance farming. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not being made available for cropping. 
Um, and so people who don't own that land or don't have access to that land aren't able to 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 eat or get mm-hmm. enough enough food. And so, of course, this is going to cause a, a lot of difficulty. And the more that Sparta participates in military activity, the people who are participating in that get loot. You know, they get booty and they they get wealthier. And if they conquer land, so in Sparta in the early, early archaic period took Messenia, which is a, quite a large and very fertile area of the Peloponnese. Um, that land was likely also divvied up, mm-hmm. but likely not equitably. I'm going to ask the question again because I think it's also interesting. There is mention of dual king kingship in Sparta. Is that correct? Yeah. So what's what's going on there? Yes. I think that will help the poem. You know, the context here. This is another really unique thing about Sparta. So. Nowhere, nowhere else really has, nowhere else in, in ancient Greece has two kings. So, so, so I've just put my hands up like little <laughs> quotation marks around the microphone because um, it, the word is actually basileus okay. um, in the singular and basileus in the plural. We often translate this word as king, but it, it doesn't actually mean king because king sort of brings, you know, Louis and Henrys <laughs> and, you know, these sort of absolute <laughs> monarchs mm-hmm. to our minds. That's not really what we're dealing with. Um, the the diarchs or the, the kings in Sparta do occupy a special position in the governing structure, but they're not their their governing structure is not necessarily um, vertical. It's more so horizontal, uh, with the kings occupying just a little bit more. But the reason they're special is because they have this really cool relationship to Zeus, mm. and uh, and it's through blood. So they are the Heraclidae, which means that they are the sons of Heracles. And Heracles is a mythical hero who is the son of Zeus. So this ipso facto, the kings are sons of Zeus, right? Um, and they hold special religious positions around that, and they're super important ideologically, in addition to having an important political position. Most of their political power can't actually be enacted individually. You know, there's a, there's a, um, there's a council of elders called the Garusia, mm-hmm. and they do a whole bunch of stuff with the kings. They can't really make individual decisions. And then there's another body called the Ephorate, and uh, or the Ephors, and they also make decisions along with the Garcia and the king. So no one's really making, there's a lot of checks and balances in the system, <laughs> but the kings have the largest amounts of land. Mm-hmm. They have this really special sort of semi-divine thing going on. They have a rich oral tradition that they trace back to before Sparta was founded. Okay. Um, so they have a lot of ideological sway. And they hold office for the longest because they hold their office until they die. So um, they have a lot of political influence, if you will. You mentioned that the kings have a rich oral tradition that traces back to before Sparta. What's before Sparta? <laughs> That's <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah, so it's really interesting. So, uh, so before Sparta, what's before Sparta? Sparta has been, so Sparta has had an active, an active archaeological record into the Neolithic period. It's, it's a really, really rich site before Sparta, um, before like our concept of yes. Sparta. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the Greeks tell lots of stories about themselves that we are like, ah, myth, cool. Right. And what we mean by that is, ah, not real. Cool. Yeah. Right. And that's that's true to a certain to a certain degree. But what I mean about the kings mm-hmm. having this oral tradition that goes back before Sparta is that they have invented a tradition 
that they probably invented this tradition around the 7th century BCE, likely around when they got two kings. Probably there was one at some point. And then they grew larger in territory and they met another really wealthy, prominent family who was very good at fighting. And they decided that we would have two. And we don't really know why they did that, but for some reason they decided to do that. And they legitimize that with storytelling. I, I find that use of the word myth to be very helpful because um, like, we all grew up with this very simplistic understanding of the word myth. Myth is that which is not true, which is not actually, ironically, that's not true. That's not really what myth is. <laughs> yeah. A myth is a story that uh, conveys meaning. And well, you're describing points to that deeper, you know, when you think of, especially when you think of ancient Greek culture, we think of myths are stories that aren't true. I think we really need to get past that in popular culture. <laughs> oh, we certainly need to get past that, mm-hmm. yeah. So so myth comes from the word mythos, yes. which really means something like authoritative speech act. And that's a ritual thing. Like, mm-hmm. this is really powerful stuff. Yes, it's like the the myth of the um, American Revolution. Uh, all countries, or not, maybe not all countries, but a lot of countries, cultures, societies have founding myths or a mythos that gives meaning. For sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. And if we think about um, what an invented tradition really is, I mean, an invented tradition is a tradition that we create to be old or ancient, but is more recently new. But the thing about invented traditions that's really important is that the people who tell them, they see them as representations of a reality. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they have historical impact and historical, you know, resonance. They, They can create historical change. So, even if the details are not real, quote unquote real, <laughs> they have the capacity to create historical change. And oh, yeah. that means we have to take them seriously, mm-hmm. yes. regardless of how weird they might sound to us. Yes. Yeah. So on that note, um, I'm curious, how are you going to analyze this poem? The, un- and I can't do it, Unomia. Unomia. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the first you. part. <laughs> but how are you going to, what's your methodology? How are you analyzing this big thing? So it's really tough. Um, so a big part of what my work does is first and foremost contextualizing these poems. So thinking about uh, contemporary context for the poems and situating within that. So that's all the, the, the civil strife stuff. That's mm-hmm. all the, the land and, and the issues. The second is looking at it through the lens of social memory or collective memory. And so it looks at these myths and asks the question of, okay, what resonance does this have for the people that are hearing this poetry? And how does that relate to this context? You know, why might it be mm-hmm. being talked about and, and, and what kind of impact might it have? And then I look at the rhetoric of the poetry. Is the poetry trying to convince its audience of something using this emotionally charged thing? And, and I think the answer is, is, is yes, is yes it is. Where does your analysis, Stephanie, of uh, the enomia, enomia, Unomia. <laughs> Unomia. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Where does it fit into the broader scholarship around, um, around archaic Sparta? And is it challenging any orthodoxies? Oh, definitely. So we have an orthodox understanding of how the how Sparta goes, mm-hmm. um, right? We 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 even in textbooks still, it's this sort of orthodox perspective of how our of how it formed around Lycurgus's reforms, and they have this austere thing, and they're interested in warfare, and that's it. And it's just this rigorous picture of what it has to look like, and it's this unique thing, and. 
my work is really challenging that perspective and saying, you know what, no, we, we have to think contextually about this and we have to stop relying on late classical post-classical Roman sources mm -hmm. to do that contextualization. We need to look more holistically. We need to think about archaeology. We need to think about how text resonates with audience and not how Plutarch and Pausanias in the first and second century CE in the Roman period thought yeah. Sparta looked like hundreds of years before. So what does that holistic approach look like? How are you even tackling that because I know the importance of the Roman source on the on the Greek tradition and it's pretty significant it's pretty significant so it's really difficult it's a lot of disparate lyric poetry that needs serious contextualization um, so there's a lot of now there's a lot of new archaeological material as well that not all of it has been published and so it's a lot of talking to other scholars who are working on Sparta it's a lot of collaboration and cooperation within classics and without outside mm -hmm. of classics to think about um, comparative models with different kinds of developing communities in different places. It's a lot of um, analyzing late sources really, really closely and thinking about how close can we corroborate this information. Mm -hmm. So going backwards and getting as close as possible. And in some ways it's just accepting that <laughs> research is limited and we can't mm. concretely say everything we want to say. To what extent do we have a, almost a Latinite understanding of ancient Greece, i.e. one given to us by a more recent uh, Roman culture? No. No? no. Okay. No. Especially with Sparta. Sparta is a tourist attraction to the yeah. Romans. So, oh, really? yeah. yeah, big time, big time. It's a tourist attraction that in order for it to survive in the Roman world, they, it needs to put out a particular image of itself as that tourist thing. And that image is violent, it's deliberately archaicized, yeah. and it's deliberately exaggerated, right? Because that's what makes a good spectacle. Yeah. And so the Roman version is bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I suppose, I mean, I, I think that's what I would have meant by my question. I mean, to the extent that there is one, how inaccurate is it? Yeah. Grossly inaccurate. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's where the abs and the, the violence and the this is Spartak. Yes, that okay. is definitely, that's partly where it comes from. And then there's this very long, toxic tradition of building what we call Western civilization yeah. around what classics is and people thinking well we own this knowledge for some reason and it defines us which is ridiculous so how does uh, someone come to be a scholar in or um, a specialist about archaic sparta can you tell us stephanie a little bit about your academic journey oh, my academic journey is was wild so i'm i'm from a farm in walkerton on near walkerton ontario mm -hmm. um in the middle of nowhere uh i'm a first generation graduate student mm -hmm. Um, first generation undergraduate student, uh, you know, uh, my parents are very proud. Uh, I'll be the first person in our family to get a doctorate. And um, I came to Sparta because I was really, I mean, I came to classics because I was really interested in warfare. And I'm not, I don't know why, that's a weird thing. Um, but I picked up this book when I was 14 at an airport um, on Alexander the Great, and <laughs> that's where it started. And then I got interested in Sparta because it was the other side of the classics coin. People spent a lot of time talking about Athens, and mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. wanted to know what the other, what something different was, you know. Where did you do your, did you do your previous education here at Western? No, I did my undergrad at uh, the University of Guelph, and I did my MA at Brock University. All in Ontario, though. 
Okay, very cool. Mm-hmm. And then your undergraduate was that in classics? Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah, cool. So three. you've been faithful to classics ever since then. I have, which is apparently unusual. A lot yeah. of people end up switching into classics when they get to their undergrad, and I entered into classics and have stuck it. Stuck I've heard it of that, or people might start with English or history. And yeah. then, um, so your research is very fascinating, and I'm sure there'll be some people with, with follow-up questions, not just Megan and I. <laughs> I have and, uh, and uh And is there a website that people can perhaps be directed towards? Yeah, so you can definitely find me on Western University's sort of departmental website. So on the Classical Studies website, you can find my information, my contact information there, and you're more than happy, like I'm more than happy to field questions from, from anybody if they want to, you know, get together chat, or if you just want to <laughs> be like, tell me more about Sparta. Uh, it's, it's a big part of my entire life is telling people more about Sparta. So, And just as a follow-up, you are also an instructional an instructor here at Western, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I am. I've, I teach an undergraduate course oh. on Sparta. It's running right now. Um, and uh, next semester, I'll be teaching this new interdisciplinary class on Antigone um, then and sort of now in the contemporary uh, global space. And people should take it. People I should think, take it. Yes. It's, you know, big call out there. It's going to be fine. I mean, everybody loves the Antigone. And if you don't, I mean, you will. <laughs> I would like to take the course, to be honest. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, we'll be sure to upload the link to your faculty page on our on our episode description. So th- awesome. Thank you very much, Stephanie, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. This has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Mark Ambrosio, and my co-host was Megan Vall. We've been speaking with Stephanie Denny, and this episode was produced by Amelie Hutchinson. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, Email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and thanks once again, Stephanie, for joining us.